Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest today is Will Peck. Will is the head of digital assets at Wisdom Tree, where he oversees the firm's digital assets, crypto, and blockchain initiatives. After speaking with Wisdom Tree's CIO, Jeremy Schwartz, a couple of weeks ago, it was great to explore their digital strategy with Will. We discussed the firm's digital roots, the complexity around launching a Bitcoin ETF, and their innovative app, Wisdom Tree Prime, which allows clients to hold real-world assets like gold, U.S. dollars, and treasuries alongside digital assets like Bitcoin and Ether on the blockchain. Please enjoy my conversation with Will Beck. Will, thanks for joining me today. Great to be with you, Eric. So when I think of Wisdom Tree, I think of brand recognition, TV advertisements, ETF firm. I don't necessarily think of crypto, but you guys have been very active. So I think a good place to start would be, how does a traditional finance firm like Wisdom Tree end up with a head of digital assets like yourself? I think one way you can think of ETFs, and maybe you can think of crypto, is around transparent exposures. Essentially, ETFs are a wrapper that can wrap around different types of asset classes or things like that and make them more accessible and a better investor experience for investors. So the way we approach digital assets, crypto, blockchain, whatever you want to call it, is as a technology, as a wrapper as well. That's the idea of what tokenization is, is creating a wrapper, a standard to provide an investor or a consumer with the underlying access to that asset class in a transparent, hopefully user-friendly way. So I think another way to think about it is just we're a transparent exposures company and digital assets is just a part of that. So what was Wisdom Tree's first foray into digital? Did they just start naturally tinkering? Was it acquisition? What was it that got them into the digital asset space in the first place? Maybe it's helpful just to do a little history on Wisdom Tree itself. So Wisdom Tree launched its first ETFs in 2006. So the company was originally a financial media company, which not a lot of people know, and still founder-led or founder-CEO transitioned kind of saw the writing on the wall in media and transitioned the company from a media business towards index development and ETF sponsorship. He did a story on the NASDAQ Qs at the time, which you know were starting to get traded as one of the few ETFs in the market and saw, wow, this is a better structure for accessing the Tech 100 than the mutual fund options that existed. It was cheaper. It was more transparent, tax efficiency saw that that was a technology step function improvement over mutual funds. So that was back in 2006. ETFs worldwide had a few hundred billion in the asset class. Today, $10 trillion in the asset class. So certainly the idea that that technological improvement of ETFs versus mutual funds has proven to be borne out over time. So I tell that story because we've always had that innovator's mindset or tried to have it towards things going forward. And 
you know, our first foray into crypto really started when I was part of a team that bought a business in Europe that specialized in commodity exchange traded products, specifically gold exchange traded products. And this was right when people were just starting. I can't remember what the price was, but people were just starting to talk about Bitcoin as digital gold, more mainstream circles. And I remember a board member asking at the time, is Bitcoin just going to replace gold? And it was a crazy question. I think some people are maybe still grappling with it. We don't think so necessarily. And that led us to think about, well, can we just launch an exchange traded product around Bitcoin? And then I was a member of the team that launched one of the first exchange traded products for Bitcoin in the European market where it's allowed. And that was the gateway in terms of wisdom tree doing more in the space. So I have to double click. You answered, which was going to be my question, but you said that the board member asked, is Bitcoin just the next gold? And you don't think that. Why don't you think that Bitcoin is a replacement to gold? It's a great question. Bitcoin's got a lot of advantages over gold. If you think about its ease of divisibility, ease of storage, if you're talking about without having a counterparty in the mix. The one thing Bitcoin does not have is thousands and thousands of years of human history of using gold as money. So I think a lot of people like to bash on gold because they say, oh, it doesn't actually keep up with inflation. But if you look over long periods of time, depending on the currency that you're in, specifically if you're in a non-developed market currency, gold does a remarkable job of maintaining its purchasing power. Maybe it goes ups and downs along the way, but you end up seeing that it keeps up with inflation very well. People tell the story that the same amount of gold can buy the same amount of bread that it could in like ancient Babylon to what still can today, which I think is very interesting. But with all that said, I think Bitcoin is just an example of how this technology can have an asset that uses this technology. And I think what we're starting to see and where we view ourselves as a leader is using the same blockchain technology, digital assets technology to wrap around other assets. And yes, it has a counterparty in the mix. You need to actually trust somebody, but you could do that where you have a gold token that provides exposure to a consumer for physical gold bars and custody. And so long as you're confident in the regulation around it and your counterparty dealing with, you can have the same experience that you could have with Bitcoin in terms of wallet, self-custody that you could with gold, for example. So I don't think it's an either or question. We believe in providing investors choice on these matters, but I think it's you want to have the product structured in the right way that they can easily access it, know the fees they're paying, et cetera. Perhaps this is because you acquired a company in Europe, but you said confidence in regulation, which is a big topic in the United States. Help me understand why you can launch an exchange-traded Bitcoin product in the European market and your view on the US regulatory market. It's funny. People want to say like one is more regulated than the other. It depends on what you're exactly talking about. So Europe has allowed exchange listing for exchange-traded products, which effectively... There's some new legal nuances and differences, but effectively, you call them an exchange trade fund in the US for years now for Bitcoin. In Switzerland, it started, and then other exchanges, not London Stock Exchange, but other exchanges have allowed them since then. And it's very different because we've been arguing about a Bitcoin ETF in the US forever now. I remember when the Winklevoss twins filed years ago with Kathleen Moriarty, I believe, who around creating a Bitcoin ETF, and people thought it was crazy at the time. And then GBTC launched way back then too, in the non-ETF weird format that it is. So it is interesting that for this one example, Europe was much more permissive. And we think a Bitcoin ETF makes sense for investors, certainly better than a lot of the alternatives that are out there. And why should, depending on your setup and how you're organized, why should a wealth manager, a pension fund, whoever, not get exposure to an asset that is frankly very widely held and available in lots of other use cases? And you can have a much better investor experience around it than people are getting through the private funds or certainly some of the closed-end trusts. So Europe versus US was a funny one for Bitcoin ETFs. 
In other examples, you see Europe being much more tighter in terms of their regulation. They have this new thing called MICA around regulation of digital asset entities. You've seen some interesting stuff over there with that. So it's tough to say one is X versus the other, but you do see some interesting differences. And what is the view on Bitcoin ETFs and the regulatory environment in the United States? You know, we've had a lot of legal cases, whether it's GBTC, there's lots of filings, there's lots of rumors. What's your take on where we are in the US? So I don't have a perfect crystal ball, of course. Wisdom Tree does have our own filing. So I've got to be mindful of what I talk about there. It seems like the sentiments really shifted, though, especially recently. You saw, I believe it was when we were recording this just a couple of days ago, that the SEC wasn't going to protest the appeals court verdict around Grayscale. There was a tweet yesterday that was, oh, BlackRock's getting approved, which is a ridiculous thing. Not true. Not true at the time that they denied. But it does seem like things are shifting in that direction. Now, we'll see what actually happens. People have gotten optimistic in the past and turned out to be wrong. But hopefully, investors can have a spot Bitcoin ETF in the near future. And we'll see how the coming weeks develop. And let's just start with the GBTC structure. So this was a odd structure used as a way to get something in the market that I think everyone knew was an idea at the time. And they've tried to since convert it to an ETF as their version, as opposed to applying for an ETF. So when the SEC says they're not appealing the case, what does that mean? Does that mean GBTC will be the first ETF? No, I don't believe so. And I'm not an exact expert on the process, but it still needs to go through an SEC comment process and things like that. So effectively, the way it works, and a lot of people, it's easy to get these mashed up, is a lot of these initial filings were for the 19B4 exchange listing filings, where an exchange makes a filing on behalf of or to list an issuer's exchange-traded product that doesn't meet generic listing standards. So CBOE, NASDAQ, NYSE, they'll make a filing called the 19B4 that says to the SEC Division of Trading Markets that, hey, this is the product that we're intending to list. This is why we make sense and blah, blah, blah. And the SEC can either approve or what they've been doing is saying, well, kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road. Okay, it's denied because it doesn't meet some of the things that the SEC is looking for. So that would happen. And then in parallel or subsequent to that, whatever you'd want to say, an S1 review would happen where the issuer files a prospectus, and that's done by the Division of Asset Management or Division of Corporate Finance, one of those two, that would actually review the S1 and say, okay, we've got comments here, here, here in terms of the risk disclosure and things like that, which is a very typical process for ETFs in mutual funds and other 40 Act products generally. So it's a long, complicated answer that probably answered it 80% of the way there, but there's multiple steps in this process. So just because the court says this, the SEC doesn't approve it, doesn't mean that that just happens tomorrow. It still needs to go through some of these processes. I know that the SEC has been denying these things since the Winklevoss twins first filed, and it feels like every financial firm files and comes up with a new version of it. Obviously, when BlackRock did it as one of the largest providers, if not the largest, it got everybody's attention, and they had a new twist to it. And it seemed, and I'm not an expert on it, so help me understand, their twist was one of the arguments I think the SEC was making is that crypto is not traded on regulated exchanges and therefore could be manipulated. And so this is a little weird one for me, but how could the SEC approve a product if it didn't regulate the market where crypto is traded? And something about a surveillance agreement that gave the SEC insight into what was going on. So what was the BlackRock twist that seemed to finally break the wall here? That's precisely it. Maybe it was a BlackRock twist or maybe it was more of a Coinbase twist, which was this idea that a market for spot Bitcoin would enter into a surveillance sharing agreement with the ETF listing exchange. So 
I think in the case of BlackRock's filing, that was NASDAQ, but I could be wrong. So that's the idea that essentially how these exchanges, they have surveillance sharing agreements where they share data on the types of purchases and activities that are going across them. Again, not an expert on this, but one of the things that the SEC, the argument in a year ago was that, hey, we've got this futures market, so the CME futures market, it's where a lot of issuers would argue price discovery for Bitcoin happens on the CME futures market, which is regulated. It's a regulated market of sufficient size. Therefore, the SEC should have comfort around the potential for market manipulation. The SEC would come back and say, no, that's not the case. It's not the case, not the case. And there was this back and forth around it. So what the BlackRock filing or really what NASDAQ's filing said is that they'll have an actual surveillance sharing agreement with a spot market, which would be a new thing that had not happened before. And that was what started to shake some stuff loose. I think you could also look that at the same time, this court case was going on with GBTC and it's tough to know which precedes the other. And it's all happened together in confluence at the same time in terms of some of this stuff. But the key thing with the BlackRock filing and subsequent filing that a lot of issuers made was this surveillance sharing agreement. And one thing I've noticed in this process, and this is probably a greater question for ETFs, but not that we've probably ever seen something like the Bitcoin ETF, but it seems that when someone has a breakthrough, everyone else can just copy and refile. It's not like, oh, I came up with some edge. So as we enter this race, and now it seems even more likely we're going to get this, is everyone just essentially launching very similar structures to one another with different prices? Yeah. Well, this is what's interesting about ETFs generally and why some people call it the terror dome. All of our filings are public. You can go, you can see what other people are doing, especially when you're covering, and this gets into some of Wisdom Tree's business strategy with our shift towards tokenization. But before I get there, it's an incredibly competitive market where undifferentiated beta, where you're saying, hey, I just want to own the US equity market, market cap weighted. I just want to own these US treasury bonds. It's hard to differentiate versus your competition. So you're seeing a lot of people be extremely price competitive in the space. And I think a lot of people look at the Bitcoin ETF race and say, wow, there's 10 issuers who are coming out at the same exact time. How do you differentiate on a product like this beyond the brand, maybe who your custodian is, and price? And ultimately, it's great for investors. It's great for investors that you got people competing in this way and that price is so competitive. And I think that's why you've seen. If you look at these charts of the average fee rate for mutual fund or ETF assets, they're just going down and down and down over time because it's such a price competitive space. And you've got firms like Vanguard, iShares, and others who have been very aggressive on pricing for this. It makes it tough, but people like WisdomTree have thrived by having more differentiated exposures or being first to market with a new beta-like exposure where you can still charge an appropriate fee around it or gain the most assets, maybe the better way to think about it. So But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see exactly what happens. So this episode won't come out for a couple of weeks, but yesterday there was a tweet from a news agency that the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF had been approved. The market moved violently up and then violently down. Maybe that's a prediction of what would happen when an ETF was actually approved. But I'm curious, what's your macro outlook on the relevance of a Bitcoin ETF to the actual market? price and action, as well as what does it mean for the financial services industry at large? It's interesting. It's funny that the price moves so much because I'm a skeptic on that. If you wanted to buy Bitcoin at this point in lots of ways, you probably could have really found a way to buy it. Now, granted, this makes the workflow so much better and people aren't having to deal with something like GBTC where they're buying at a huge premium or discount, not really knowing what they're getting. 
So I think a Bitcoin ETF is a fantastic product for investors in a lot of ways. But I guess conceivably, it could be a lot of people waiting on the sidelines and that would drive the price up. Prices move in crypto very quickly for not a lot of reasons. You don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And there could be that people are just think it's going to be a big news and then it could settle back down. I don't know if it's going to be a flood of new monies coming in just because a spot Bitcoin ETF is approved. There are a lot of options for investors. Retail can always have gotten access to crypto in a lot of ways, but increasingly for other assets or other asset owners as well to invest in the space. So I don't know if it's going to be a giant flood of money initially. That's at least my bet. And is it your belief? Because I think we saw this with the ETH futures, which raised a little bit of money, but wasn't necessarily eye-popping. And it was futures, not spot. Is this just going to be like a derby where everyone's just going to launch on the same day? And it's just, in ETFs in the past, it seemed that if you had the ticker, you were the first one, you really had a competitive advantage just in the zeitgeist of the buying public. In this case, is everyone just going to start on the same day and split the pot? We'll see what happens. I mean, it's certainly interesting where if GPTC actually does convert, they're starting with, I don't know where they are today, $16 billion in seed. If that was an ETF launch, it'd be by far the biggest, the best seeded ETF launch of all time. And then you've got BlackRock, who's obviously the largest ETF issuer as well. So it could be a derby and it could be price competitive and people are going to try and differentiate in the ways that they can. Yeah, I agree. It's completely different than how any ETF has been launched in the past. You think about when GLD launched the gold ETF, that took in crazy amounts of money in the first day. I think still to this day, that might be one of the largest launches of all time. And it had years before another gold ETF came out. So clearly that's not the case anymore in ETFs. What used to be a market that just had a few players in it, people would be able to be first to market in a major asset class in a new way. That's not the case anymore with the ETF industry. So try to help pitch me on why the ETF makes sense. I think in the GLD example, it was probably one of the greatest examples to me from a why do ETFs make sense. You have this asset class that some people like to have exposure to, but it actually was truly hard to get. You have to own it or have these special conditions and security. And the ETF gave us turned an illiquid or less liquid asset into a liquid asset. And so the ETF did something that seemed to make sense. Here, you have a very liquid asset, to your point. You can get in lots of places. What's the pitch to get the ETF beyond the fact that everyone seems to want it? And it seems like a big prize. But I struggle to understand what was the pitch that this is going to be a big deal? What is ETF doing? I think it's just a workflow solution, to be honest. It's for people who, if you're a financial advisor today, let's say you're an RIA and you believe in Bitcoin, you maybe always want to have an exposure to some uncorrelated asset like Bitcoin or gold. You want to have 5% of your portfolio or make up a number allocated to something like that. You need to do some work, some legwork today to get Bitcoin into a client's portfolio. You could do GBTC, but then you're not getting the proxy for it. And it's the price isn't actually the underlying Bitcoin price. We can talk more about that. Or you can set up your own bespoke relationship with a custody company and be able to manage it that way. That would be the Coinbase custody or somebody like that. And those are not necessarily good options for investors and for the financial advisors. What an ETF does is it gets it into the same workflow that the other assets are. So you can definitely see that being an advantage could be the same thing depending on the type of financial advisory firm or things like that. So I think it's good for providing investors exposure, but by no means is it necessarily the best way to hold Bitcoin, depending on who you are. A lot of people might like to self-custody Bitcoin and that's great. You should be able to do that. And a Bitcoin ETF is not going to help you do that at all. So you should still be able to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, get good trading there, and then you can move it off exchange if that's what you want to do. 
So I think to me, the Bitcoin ETF is more about just providing investors more choice, but it is definitely different than GLD. It's very hard to have gold bars. It's very hard to store gold bars and sell them. And GLD solved that in a great way. I don't view the Bitcoin ETF as necessarily doing the same thing. It's just providing workflow solutions, I think, to more investors. Before we move on to the tokenization of assets at large, just staying on the crypto theme for a bit, what has been your macro take? We've had inflation, we've had world events, we've had things that people back when you first heard that Bitcoin was going to replace gold, some of these things it hasn't lived up to where it should be. Other people tell you it's a technology with long duration and all the volatility makes sense. What's your macro take on where Bitcoin is? It is funny that you'd think that with all this stuff that's gone on, oh, isn't this the perfect environment for Bitcoin or gold, you might say. And it doesn't always prove out to be the case. I think Bitcoin, it's just not predictable enough yet. And things move for different reasons than you might not expect. So I think long-term, there's lots of reasons that it can make sense as an allocation investor's portfolio for the same reasons that gold could with maybe this other duration technology play that you could think about. But it's tough to point to a reason say like, oh, it should be here this month. So I think from a firm perspective, we certainly believe that if an investor wants it, first of all, they should get access to it in a inexpensive, secure, and cost-effective way, which has not been the option for a lot of our clients to date. And provided it fits within your portfolio and your risk constraints, it can make sense to have as a long-term solution, but it doesn't always move like you'd expect. Watching the financial services firms react to blockchain, I think you go through different themes. One was, I don't like crypto, but I like blockchain technology. It was a funny side. You had these banks go down this path of trying to build private blockchains. You mentioned that you all are looking more at public chains. What's the reason why people you think went down that private blockchain path? Why don't you think it will work? And why are you all focused on public? It's a great question. I think it's blockchain, not Bitcoin thing was so ridiculous. They're talking about different things. I don't know why you're making that comparison or saying Bitcoin is bad. I thought it was ridiculous. And when we started this journey, I started my journey in blockchain and crypto. It was when a lot of these big bank consortiums were doing these giant private blockchain type things, which maybe was a solution in search of a problem in some ways. I think of the advantages with tokenization or blockchain generally being liquidity, transparency, and standardization. And let's focus on the last one first for standardization. If you're having a bunch of different private blockchains implemented that have all these tweaks at the base layer, and one bank's doing it over here, and then one bank's doing their own version over there, and they can't talk to each other, I don't know what benefit you're getting out of that. You might as well just have a bunch of SQL databases that are sitting over there, sitting over there, and these databases don't inherently talk, and then you have giant reconciliation exercises. To me, one of the huge advantages of this technology is that on Ethereum, anyone with a ERC-20 compatible wallet can hold an ERC-20 compatible token. That sharing of standards is very powerful. And it matters from a developer's perspective. There's a huge code library of people building open source software using these standards and being able to draft off that, use it in different ways, and have that same communication layer, if that makes sense, I see as being one of the big benefits of this technology. And that's really only maybe a little bit mix and matching concepts here, but that's really only possible with these open networks as opposed to a lot of these big private blockchain things that happen. So I don't mean to dismiss private blockchains out of hand. Different use cases for different technologies, that's fine. For us, people would say, oh, regulated financial services, you can't deal with permissionless networks because you don't have controls. Well, you can just put controls at a different point in the process. It's not like every token, you can have controls within a token itself that says, hey, you have to freeze, you can claw back, you can do different things like that. 
which allows you to maybe take advantage of some of the major benefits of permissionless networks, the uptime, the shared standards, a lot of the stuff without having the same controls issue that people might feel like they have. So that's been our attitude towards it, but obviously it's still being borne out over time. So probably the two areas that I think people get most focused on is the blacklisting of bad actors, the OFAC, FinCEN, When you're a financial services firm, you have a lot of responsibilities, whether you're a bank or a non-bank, that if the government says these people can't do something, you have to be able to censor it, which seems unaligned with a lot of the purest sides of Bitcoin. And then the second piece is is settlement and unwinding stuff. Let's start with the first one. If WisdomTree or any financial services firm launches a token, how do you handle the blacklisting problem? Well, I think it depends on the type of token that you're talking about, but I think you're seeing great examples of this today. So for people who are nerding out on this stuff, a lot of the the best stablecoin regulation, in my opinion, comes out of the New York Department of Financial Services, where they've got a standard in terms of how they think stablecoins should be issued and how that could look. So when WisdomTree does our own token issuances, we bring a lot of this in mind. And you can see today that they have certain controls in place over those tokens that they could do something like blacklisting based on OFAC. And especially on public networks where you're not dealing with Monero or things like that, let's put that aside. You get a lot of visibility based on these blockchain analytics firms in terms of different addresses and things. So you can customize that, I think, in a very constructive way, which is, I think, an interesting technology. And you let the market decide at a certain level. So if people are looking for a lot of access, the ability to interface very easily with the US dollar system, then you've got stable coins that are more highly regulated, maintain these controls in place, which is very different than something like Tether, which you know might just be floating around out there. You have no idea where it's going. There's no checks on it at all, whatever you might want to say about it. So I think there's the tools in place that you can use these publicly available infrastructure, which is what blockchains are, but do it in a way that meets the needs of what you need to do as a financial services company and meet the regulators where they are using these tools. I don't want to say there's never any conflict in that or that people don't have different disagreements in that, but at least our mentality towards it has been to think about it as infrastructure that we can use and still meet all of our high regulatory and reputational obligations while still using this technology. And then the second point that seems to get people all contorted is this notion of zero day or instant settlement with the inability to unwind trades. Now, I have my own views, but I'd be curious, how do you think about this finality of settlement? I think the ideal is to give market participants choice. Right now, if you want to trade US equity, you're almost always in the same T plus two settlement cycle. That's just what it is. You can't ever say, what if I want it like that? What if I want to settle it instantly? What if I want 10 minute batch settlement? There's a lot of customization available within that. You got to get really into the weeds on some of this stuff. But I think this new settlement technology unlocks a lot of potential from instant pre-funded final settlement to more of a traditional T plus two batch settlement cycle. And there's lots of choice within that that can improve market structure and market participants experience, if that makes sense. So I think it's an amazing technology like DEXs. It's amazing. It's amazing that you can have instant settlement like that without having a central counterparty in between. And atomic settlement reduces a lot of risk from a DVP or something type settlement where you can just swap an asset instantly like that. So we use elements of that in what we're doing in Wisdom Tree Prime, which I think is very cool, the power of instant settlement, but you got to work on it as it scales and getting towards capital efficiency and things like that that will come over time. But I think giving investors choice and you can maybe pay a premium in terms of spread or things is 
actually very worthwhile with this technology. So let's move to Prime. So this is as an entity of Wisdom Tree. You know, you guys are focused on real world assets and actually bringing more things to the chain. So when you thought about that, I've talked to lots of financial services firms. Everybody's working on different parts. It seems like everyone had a committee and everyone was trying to figure out what area that they were going to focus on. You all went after the wallet, which I find intriguing as a starting point. Why go down that path and what does Prime cover today? So I think the story of how we got here, I gave the example of ETFs versus mutual funds. And we thought, hey, is there something to tokenization as a step function improvement over mutual funds? Is it through over time, greater liquidity, greater transparency, greater standardization that you could really improve what you could do with an ETF? And one example would be ETFs today feel very separate from your payments. No one ever thinks that, oh, I just sell an ETF to buy my cup of coffee or things like that, even though it sounds ridiculous. But you think about it, hey, I'm getting risk-free yield of 5% in my brokerage account today and my bank is paying me nothing. So can I keep my money working for me longer? And I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. And I think when you have this type of rail that you're getting with what we put together with Wisdom Tree Prime, the ability to have a money market fund-like experience or floating rate treasuries connected much more closely to a payments instrument or an ability more of like a checking savings account experience where you can actually get the risk-free rate today. That's a very compelling offering that we saw being the potential collapsing the investing and payments tech stack into one tech stack through this. So that's something we saw being very compelling with what we could do with Prime. So it's a long entree to it. So we started saying, all right, can tokenization be better than ETFs? And as we thought about these advantages to it, we're like, well, should we build the wallet ourselves? Is that way we can actually create the best user experience around this so we're not relying on other intermediaries like we do with ETFs to get into investors' hands, but instead we could shift how we thought of ourselves as a company and actually deliver these services directly to retail investors, even though it's a new client set, even though there's lots of things that come with that. But we thought it was ultimately a better user experience for somebody where we could do that example, like I said, of connecting money market fund-like instrument directly to a debit card in a much more native way than exists today for a lot of people. So two parts. One is, I think about being at Fidelity and then having the ability to have a debit card and basically write checks off your money market fund, which when it was first rolled out, people thought it was crazy and heresy, but it became a thing. So what advantages does doing it in a blockchain or wallet version have over the check writing off a money market as a format? I think it's just democratization of that to a certain extent. I think the Merrill money market account's been around for a while, Fidelity, something like that. I think those things are generally underutilized and people don't necessarily realize how they can have a digital first experience that can meet them more directly there. So I think that's one element of it too. I think just by the way we've architected it and the technology that we've just got greater visibility and control and the customer has greater control over their assets in that, which maybe sounds soft, but I think provides greater benefits in terms of doing that. So I think, yeah, money market accounts have been around for a while, but people still sit in checking accounts and earn nothing on their money. And I think providing that technology to more and more people is, I think there's just definitely a democratization element of that. And then as you were talking about it, it made me think that as I started trying to study the ETF companies, it felt a lot like they were very much IP companies. They came up with an idea, they came up with a recipe, but then there's all these intermediaries, trading desks, calculation agents, industry providers, everyone's charging fees. And then what the ETF provider is saying is, here's my recipe, here's my index. 
which is obviously a good business model. And the shift to wallet is so fascinating because it seems like a departure where now you're building infrastructure. You're talking about rails and payments. Is that a big change for Wisdom Tree to say, we're not just creating IP and having great ideas that giving people exposure to risk, but now we're actually building physical, technical infrastructure people are going to use? Yeah, I think it was a shift in how we thought of ourselves as a company, but it didn't actually require a lot of spend or anything. I think we had a lot of the ingredients in-house in terms of how we thought of ourselves as an ETF company. Like I'll give you one example. Our software team, it's the same software team who builds the tools that we use today and who manages the database that is so incredibly important for any asset management company to have good database engineers to be able to know which securities are going when and all this stuff. It's all the same people. So I think a lot of those skills actually map very well. Where we didn't have the skills where we needed to hire was people to be like UI designers, because you don't want engineers just designing on their own. You don't want people who are actually have done mobile app development from a design perspective. So I think that was a new skill set that we developed, but we've been able to do it well. What has been very interesting for me, I thought to take any funding from customers and any sort of fintech app, you need to be connected to the ACH network, the ability to essentially pull money from your B of A or Chase account and fund the app. So that uses the ACH Rails, which is a whole retail payments thing. That is a very different language than institutional capital markets finance. So that was something we need to develop over time and make the right hires and ingrain that in our DNA. So I think part of what I think has given us a leg up as we feel other people starting to look at this is connecting those traditional asset management with the retail payments with blockchain. Those three don't naturally talk to each other. And so that's what we built and developed, which has been very exciting. We've got live product with it now. And what can you do today? So today we've got instant deposit where you can fund instantly from your checking account. You can purchase gold, Bitcoin, Ether instantly. And we use a effectively of a closed loop stable coin. We call it Wisdom Tree Dollar as the dollar rails within that. And then we've got nine funds covering equities, treasuries, as well as some asset allocation type strategies built in that today. So that's our call it minimum viable product. That's what we're starting to go out, testing with some users. What's very exciting is what we're adding in the coming months, so peer-to-peer transferability. So one thing blockchain is very good at is native peer-to-peer, which is much harder in a lot of other traditional systems. So peer-to-peer transferability, the ability to fund with blockchain-based assets. So the idea that, oh, if I've got a stable coin over here, I can actually move that and fund a Wisdom Tree Prime account and then get immediately into more yielding assets. So I think for a lot of people who have crypto wealth, they could think about that as a good way to diversify and more easily stay within that system, as well as the debit card connectivity that I talked about. So the idea that you can have debit card connected more natively with a yielding instrument is something we see being a good cash flow management type tool, especially with rates where they are today, where every day you sit in 0% checking accounts, you're losing money. So those are some things we've got coming out over the coming months, which we're pretty excited about. So as a way to think about Prime, you basically created a brokerage system in a box where now if you open up a Prime wallet, you basically have a place to deposit funds. You can buy and sell the tokenized versions of financial products. It's not a brokerage company per se. It's just a wallet. Yeah. We say Prime is an entity. Prime is a series of different regulated entities that have different licenses and money transmitters and broker dealers that we put together in this package called Wisdom Tree Prime. I think that's exactly it. And I think one thing, save, spend, invest, all within one experience in a good way. One thing we're not is the trading. We're not Robinhood. You're not going to have thousands of securities that you can buy and sell and get little 
fireworks when you do that or trade options. Much more curated investing experience where you can say, okay, this is where I can go to invest, not just trade. And if you can manage your money in this way, connect it more closely with payments, fund and transfer money to friends and family easier, connect with other fintech apps more easily now that you're starting to see people like PayPal, Square, have these integrations with crypto transfers. That's the idea behind it. So yes, it's like a disintermediated in a way brokerage account, but much more of a curated experience as opposed to just a trading app. So stable coins are one of my favorite products. It's the thing that blew my mind. And that was probably eight years ago or whatever it was when it was first introduced to me as an idea, mostly because of my background with the money market. So the way you guys have a stable coin today, what is it investing in? Is it running another money market fund? Are these parallel products? We have a money market fund over here and then a token that's just a representation of it. Or is the token actually not a money market fund like USDC where it doesn't pay out the interest? Yeah, you're getting to really in-depth question. So today, no, the way the Wisdom Tree dollar token works today, and there's disclosure about this on the website, we're just effectively sitting in a bank account at a custody bank, a large custody bank. And there's no, you can't pay any interest on it. That's a clear thing in stable coins. So that's why for Circle, it's been such an incredible business that they've got, I don't know how much they've got today, but billions and billions of dollars that they're sitting on paying nothing on, and they're able to invest it in this BlackRock money market fund and clip all the interest. So I'd love to get there as a business, but that's not where we're at today. So you've got the stable coin, which effectively is just the rail. It's omnibus accounting for moving cash around is a way to think about it. And then we will also be offering more money market fund instruments. What I could say is the ability to invest in funds that are floating rate treasury fund, you know, which is very stable nav, pays 5% interest, feels like a money market fund is the best way to say it. So those are separate products. So when you were talking about interest bearing, if I open a private account and I move my money, I'm in the token, just like a normal stable coin, but it's the wisdom tree, non-interest bearing. I then buy a bond fund token. How does that work? Yeah, exactly. Just enter an order, buy a bond fund, and then immediately invest it in a bond fund. This is a naive question, but this whole thing of real world assets, there's clearly this regulatory ambiguity with creating a security. So in this case, you have created a security. It's the wisdom tree bond fund, whatever that is. And then I have a token that's connected to the bond fund, but I still get interest, but that token's not a security. The best way to think about it is that it's a fund. It's a bond fund that's got a prospectus, traditional 40 act review requirement with a share record that's a token. So what you hold in your wallet is that record. And then we maintain transfer agent books and records of all the ownerships. So that integrated record keeping is really what you have. So as far as the investor is concerned, they're just, I'm holding a token. And then if one day in the future, we allow them to transfer that token to another wallet, they just transfer the token through that way. You could potentially in the future, think about like self-custody if you're able to do appropriate KYC and investor identification on that self-custody wallet, right? They could still just hold that bond fund in there, but it is funds and securities. So you do need to actually know the record of ownership. It's not a stable coin. It's more of a bearer instrument. No, these are registered instruments, if that makes sense. How can a bond fund pay interest? to a token, but a money market fund can't pay interest to a token. Well, it depends. Are you asking why can't USDC pay interest? No, I knew USDC couldn't. That would make it a security. So they have this nice little regulatory protection to keep the interest. But in the example of tokenizing a bond fund, where I'm getting lost is why can a bond fund that's tokenized deliver the interest to the token holder, but the money market, the wisdom tree stablecoin, whatever you figured out to do for the bond fund, why couldn't you do that for the wisdom tree stablecoin too? Because the stablecoin is under a different, 
It's not a fund that's being issued in that way. You could have a money market fund that could be tokenized. It could effectively the same thing as a bond fund. It's just the means by which you're offering the disclosure around it, how people can buy it, what they can do with it once they own it. So that was a lot of what we did was working with the regulators and our partners to create this new extension on an existing fund structure to allow that record to be held as a token, right? And effectively getting all the benefits where you're receiving interest on it, but it's sold to you under a prospectus with the appropriate regulatory review and we've got the appropriate disclosure and stuff around it. So that was a lot of work to be able to get there. And I guess that's what allows it to pay that interest. And then right now, this is, I don't know if it's the right word, a closed loop system. You can't take your tokens from your prime wall and then just transfer them to your MetaMask account. Is that correct? Correct, right now. But you can easily see where you can get in the future. And why do this on blockchain anyway? I think you go back to those standards that I talked about, where you could have, and I think if you go three years in the future, you're going to see lots of fintech apps that have much more native connectivity across each other using blockchain-based rails. So I think you're seeing this today with the PayPal stablecoin. Why is PayPal doing a stablecoin? Well, because now it's like Venmo, but you don't just need to have Venmo customers. And they're still earning the balance on those dollars. And they can be transferred across lots of different places. Opening up those walled gardens, it changes a lot of the ways that financial services operates, where you just feel like you're constrained into your B of A or Chase account, and they're just upselling you into all this stuff. If you can have things more natively talk to each other and value move across them much more easily, I think there's just a lot of promise with that. And so that's where I think, I believe things are going to go in the next three years. And if you're able to interoperate and open yourself up when people can come to you for the services they want and not for the other services, it's going to be a much better customer experience and you should see some good outcomes come out for customers. Is the reason for the current closed solution, is it a technology thing or is it a regulatory hurdle that we haven't yet solved before you can open it up? I would just say it's a product development thing in terms of as we've developed it. And there's also, if you're out opening up transfers outside, you've got questions around fraud and security and stuff like that. So not that we feel very good about that, but it's more of just as we're rolling it out, that's the case. I was curious about that. If it's a books and records thing and you're trying to keep KYC of who owns what share classes, that's normal in the traditional world. But if you just let the token go into the wild, you lose a bit of the control over it being a who owns what where. But you could start getting some really interesting solutions to that. And that's where it gets back to the controls that people might put in place around stablecoins, where you might know, hey, this set of wallets has been KYC'd by some institutions attesting to those. So I can label these wallets as eligible for these securities, and you can actually transmit value that way in a much easier way. So there's just a lot of potential for customization. One way that I think is very, this gets to a company that Wisdom Tree helped back called Securency, let's say like Reg D securities offered. There's so much paperwork type stuff involved in that right now. And if you're able to actually encode within tokens, smart contract, whatever you'd say, who is eligible for this security transaction and who's not, and then know in the investor wallets, oh, is this eligible and this transaction is not, is this a qualified investor? You can start to see removing a lot of paperwork and reducing a compliance burden for these types of transactions. Start to bring that more across border too, where you could say, oh, I have confidence that this Wallet X is based in Japan, they're eligible to have this transaction. Wallet Y based in North Korea is not. And you can start to do securities transactions. Now, I think this is actually 10 years away from operating at scale, but you can see some cool stuff with it. So when Real World Assets was first introduced to me, 
it was going after, I think the first example was something like the European real estate that people were going to do a deal anyways, and they put something on chain. And it seemed like the path of the industry was going after illiquid assets. Maybe it's private placements and angel investments that are pieces of paper floating around. In your opinion, you have tokens for a treasury fund, which is the opposite, most liquid. So when you think about real world assets, the industry, talk to you about the opportunity in the illiquid space, these things that are currently PDFs and emails being saved. And on the other side, tokenizing highly liquid. Where is the opportunity that gets you most excited and what are some of the differences? So we're most excited about the liquid side, certainly at the start. And I think a lot of people have made the mistake by equating technology for liquidity with liquidity. They think, oh, I'm going to tokenize this hotel in the St. Regis in Utah. And that doesn't magically make it liquid. People actually want to own the hotel. And so I think there's been a lack of a two-sided market in tokenization that's happened in the past where people are like, oh, I'm going to tokenize this thing that trades like an ETH trades 24-7. So now this token will trade 24-7. And that's just not how markets work. Anyone who's done ETS knows it's not the wrapper, it's the underlying that matters in terms of actually generating liquidity. I think that's where a lot of people made mistakes, not made mistakes, it's just been a journey in terms of go to some of these real world asset tokenization conferences that have been around for six years. Some people have been like banging their head against the wall for a long time. I think a lot of the focus on illiquid assets, because they're like, yeah, it's a terrible experience. We can make it moderately better, but you need high quality assets to be able to do that. And I think to me, the biggest example of real world asset tokenization is stable coins. That is stable coins with the most liquid asset in the world being US dollars. It's really like a US dollar liability of the issuer and you get into some of the specifics there. But I think the liquid side is actually with assets that have demand and can you actually improve the experience or solve some problem with the way you're delivering that demand. And stable coins clearly solve that for crypto trading. And increasingly, people think they're solving it in other ways for holding wealth in countries with poor currencies or cross-border remittances or payments and things like that. So I look at stablecoins, I think, well, why can't you just do that with other assets like money market fund that's held in a similar way? Maybe it has some additional restrictions on transfers, but as a better regulated model of custody, you're not going to have a moment where USDC gaps down 10% because they held a billion dollars in Silicon Valley Bank also pays yield where it is today. So I view stablecoins as the starting point of this, but not where it finishes in terms of what this technology provides. What do we need to get to a stablecoin paying interest? I think it's our floating rate. No, I shouldn't say that. It's stablecoin is like a term of art that isn't necessarily great. But if you're talking about a token that can be held by an investor's wallet that has certain ability to transfer it in ownership of it, you're starting to see that today with our floating rate treasury digital fund right now. Do not want to call it a stable coin because that is a very specific term, but a token that has associated with a fund that has relatively stable value that pays interest. You're starting to see that stuff. So I think where people want to be is, oh, this can just live in DeFi and trade on Uniswap. That's going to take some time, at least from the US side to kind of get there. It may never get there. It may need to be like permission DeFi and you can get into all this interesting stuff. But you're starting to see that now where you can have yield-bearing tokenized funds, if that makes sense. So this has been a lot of fun. As you look forward to Wisdom Tree, what are you most excited for Wisdom Tree clients to be able to experience as you build out this business over the next couple of years? For us, it's certainly the unit that I lead, Wisdom Tree Prime and the digital assets and tokens that we're delivering related and a part of that is certainly what we're most excited about. 
It's going to be something like 33 states today. It'll be a bit more probably by the time people listen to this. So going state by state, getting the licenses, but by Q1 of next year, we're going to have a really exciting, full functioning offering that we're going to be marketing to investors, which is quite exciting after this period. So that's exciting for us. An overall point that I'd make is I think a lot of people take for granted with the development of ETFs was this idea that you can hold any asset without any new paperwork. You just needed a brokerage account. I think what we're starting to see with tokens over time is what's more prevalent than brokerage accounts? It's smartphones. This idea of standards, wallets on smartphones, there's lots of regulation and stuff that needs to go into that. So I don't mean to say it can happen overnight like that, but I think there's a real democratization and access impact that comes from that, this kind of standards for holding assets. So we're excited to be a part of that going forward. Well, thanks, Will. I appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot, Eric. Good being with you. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.